Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Of course, of course. We need the fun facts. If there's no fun facts, then what's the point of listening? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of fun facts, I think, you know, really the, the film that we're talking about today is one of the most impactful films of all time, speaking from a strictly uh, economic standpoint for the niche it represents. Uh, you know, I, I, as cited in a viral TikTok that Ma- Malcolm sent to me, uh, and confirmed as like one of the only things on the Wikipedia page for this film, sales and production of Pinot Noir skyrocketed, while uh, that of Merlot took the exact opposite dip due to the uh, spiels uh, given by Paul Giamatti in the film we're talking about today. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 222. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. See, I, I'm a real big numerology guy, and I've really missed saying the number of the episode, and I think coming back on such a sweet, even triplicate of a 222 <laughs> is just a beautiful way to start the new season of Extended Clip. Absolutely, man. I mean, we got to show off our big numbers, man. We got to, any big numbers we got, we got to show them off. 200? We got 200 of these? We got to, you know, exalt that. Last month, we talked about music as it pertains to the cinema. This month, we're going to talk about how many episodes of the podcast we've done. <laughs> that's, that's the theme. <laughs> Our topic today is Sideways, the 2004 film by Alexander Payne. Um, this was a huge film for me as a nascent cinephile. It's very uh, strange, but I guess I now that I've kind of psychologized it a little bit, it makes more sense. But I would say when I first became like a real movie guy and not just watching the comedy films that were an extension of all my favorite comedy TV, um, my two like movies that I would say were my favorites were Boogie Nights and Sideways. And I think the impulse there uh, for Sideways is that it was like a totally like, well, both of them were adult movies, but one of them was like explicit while the other was more about adult themes and clearly aimed at people much older than, you know, 18 year old me. Uh, So, you know, as an 18 year old who thought the taste of wine was disgusting, uh, I, I found great solace in this film, you know, because it's about people who well first of all are pathetic people uh and self like rightfully self-loathing people uh but people who are very passionate about one thing and at that age for me maybe it was music uh for some people it's baseball cards you know who knows uh but i think the uh fixation and fetishization of the 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 culture of wine uh, obviously it fits these characters but you can really substitute any passion that you the viewer have in there uh for the film to reflect a more universality um or more of a universality rather had, had you guys seen this film before uh you know this film's been in the popular culture for almost 20 years now uh any any thoughts going into the episode well it's funny that you say that how those two movies sideways being one of them it kind of represented a certain thing because i remember like seeing posters of this like when i was young like before i even had like an interest in movies and kind of just being like like what's that you know like a wine bottle like yeah like i i feel like seeing this poster to me it kind of represented like adult life and so I, I kind of, I always have that image of it in my head. And I eventually watched it. And to be honest, I when the, on first watch, I didn't like it so much. This time, I like it a little bit more. Um, I definitely like the movie now. But, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I guess I, uh, it's, it's just kind of funny that whether I like or love the movie, I feel like the poster, the iconic sideways poster with two of them sideways in a wine bottle, that's, that's always going to stick in my head. So... In a, in a strange way, this this is kind of like a uh, one of the important movies of my subconscious. Honestly, 
I've just heard about Sideways mostly secondhand through people like uh, I was talking to Nico earlier and uh, his parents are uh, wine fans and uh, that's it's their favorite movie and just like I don't know I feel like Sideways is a lot of uh, uh, parents favorite movies but I don't know I really went into it like knowing it had a pretty big reputation um probably like outside of like election uh like the biggest alexander Payne movie um i guess like about schmidt like probably up there too but it depends what you say is biggest like whether it's you know people that watch criterion movies or in the public consciousness you know I, I meant like public consciousness. Yeah, I would say about like, Schmidt is definitely like, up there. Then, yeah. I don't know. I like all the pain movies that I've seen. Election about Schmidt, uh, Nebraska, all to varying degrees, and I love the middle class kind of loathing milieu that he works in. Uh, so I was really excited to tackle like a big, more canonical. A blind spot with this one yeah i i feel like the middle class ennui of in this film californians but for the most part in his filmography midwesterners uh it's almost like americans are so dumb they didn't catch up to modernism uh like the european style of modernism uh in filmmaking until like 50 years later and so this is like his his uh you know middle brow hollywood version of the uh, the bourgeoisie ennui presented that brings about bigger themes in the films of like Antonioni. Uh, and it also has kind of a setup that reminds me of like a very middle brow Hollywood version of a Romare or a Renoir where it's like, you know, uh, just four people in this beautiful vacation town and using the landscapes and the people and character archetypes alongside uh, specificity that comes with performance as well to craft a film that, you know, depicts very bad people <laughs> the the pathos is really like the the patheticness of the character is really what brings its pathos it's because you you want him to stop being so fucking pathetic almost you know uh and i think everyone is drawn like that except for the virginia madsen character who's like you know i think purposefully drawn almost in a there's something about mary way uh drawn as perfect to symbolize uh, the despair of the men in the film and what they see is like a perfect woman. And even when it's right there, how they can't grasp it uh, because they get in their own way. What, what's interesting, you know, because the movie is definitely, you know, admitting, you know, the patheticness of these characters, whether, you know, it's Paul Giamatti and kind of his struggles, you know, with women after the divorce or Thomas Hayden Church being like a rampant womanizer and stuff like that, but it it is it is at heart not uh, not very satirical, or it, it doesn't feel like a satire of these characters. It does genuinely consider their emotions, and you know the movie you know roots for them in a sense. So I feel like it, the this movie kind of takes on a very uh, particular tone, where it's kind of playing that game of being critical of its characters, but not kind of like overcritical to where it's like condemning them too hard there's there's always you know this movie has goodwill towards its characters at the in the end even if it you know it's willing to poke fun at them and i think it's an interesting balance yeah i mean i think that's something that appears in all of alexander payne's films and you know he'd gotten criticism for the same way the coen brothers did where it's like oh are they is he too misanthropic you know does he hate his characters too much and you know you can still be a humanist and care about people and criticize uh, what you know society and culture uh, breeds in people and the worst tendencies that come out of it. Uh, and I think that specifically with Midwesterners and in this case Californians uh, is like the specificity of pain. Uh, you know, from this all the way up to downsizing and before it with Citizen Ruth and election. There's all of this work going on at my building, and it's just a total nightmare. And I had a bunch of stuff I had to deal with this morning, but I'm on my way. I'm out the door right now. Okay, so let's get into Sideways in particular. 
for those who don't know, this is a film starring Paul Giamatti, Thomas Hayden Church, Sandra Oh, and Virginia Madsen. It's a self-absorbed writer character. Sound familiar from like several types of movies we've covered on this, mainly Mm -hmm. of the European art house variety, but sometimes of the Woody Allen variety. Um, Self-absorbed writer, failed writer, uh, a middle school English teacher. And I think the perversion of him is kind of downplayed like uh, throughout the whole time. He's saying, oh, I'm not him referring to the Thomas Hayden Church pig character. But this is a, uh, you know. This is a middle school English teacher who's uh, very up to date on the copies of Barely Legal magazine. Yeah. Oh, actually, can I get a, a Barely Legal, please? Thank you. No, actually, sorry, the new one? Yeah. Like, the dude's a scumbag. Absolutely. A pathetic yeah. scumbag. That was that was very yeah that was very subtle. I, I I noticed he was you know his pornography of choice. You know it says a lot about the man. You know well it's not so. just that he likes it. It's that he needs the new issue. Like he's already ha- he's already seen that issue. <laughs> sure, he wasn't pulling this one out the archives. He's a subscriber. You know he's waiting for that <laughs> that monthly thing in his mailbox. You know. But the self-absorption starts at minute one, you know, from him uh, saying that he's already headed out on the road and then taking a giant dump and, you know, playing that off as bumper to bumper traffic the whole time. And every choice he makes is somewhat self-absorbed. Um not even somewhat fairly. <laughs> uh, but then he yeah. goes to pick up Thomas Hayden Church for this epic bachelor party week and thomas hayden church's character is a uh, very meta character it's basically thomas hayden church at this point in time it's a former tv actor who's now basically just doing commercial voiceover work and this film of course was old tom's comeback um so he picks him up for this bachelor party weekend but of course the comedic uh inversion of a classic tale here is that the the bachelor to be wants his loner best man to get laid one time before he gets married of course this is undone throughout the film as thomas hayden church takes a liking to the sandra o character uh and paul giamatti drawn to the waitress maya played by virginia madsen and they couple off and you know have their romantic entanglements for the next hour or so lies deception you know the usual deal uh the the big lie in this one because every relationship comedy has its big lie that comes in like 20 to 30 minutes in that shapes the whole movie until it's revealed uh because that's just how movies worked and we've talked about this forever so the big lie here is that they're actually uh in wine country uh not for a bachelor party uh but for a celebration that paul giamatti's newest book is being released uh so that is the setup lots of fun scenes in between yeah jt what what did you think of this how how did you feel about the characters the style etc well, I mean, the style itself, like, obviously very consistent and similar to the rest of Payne's work. Uh, there's one scene in particular that I feel like maybe a little later I would uh, like to uh, touch on because I think it is. Um, well, I guess I'll just get right into it now. The scene where Giamatti is, like, drunk, blackout is uh, an accurate depiction of being that too far gone and I don't know is an interesting choice because I feel like oftentimes I don't know there is that type of scene in films or like particularly I don't know a romantic comedy but the way Payne does it with having these like handheld camera work again is kind of an obvious choice but like having it uh, get a little too close the way the body sort of like goes in and out of uh, camera there I really like that and uh, when I was thinking about like I don't know sideways for weed it was just like how is there like I, I feel like for being stoned there's not an as nearly as accurate of like a like depiction in cinema but I was just again I it's the, the movie is just rooted in wine, and uh, I like that there's a good visualization of being drunk. 
at one of the key points of the film. Yeah, the thing with uh, you know weed movies or sideways for weed is that you know there actually are a bunch of weed movies being produced, but they're all called like Trap House or whatever, and they have like the Evil Bong 50- series. The Evil Bong. That's kind of another variant too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually many variants of like the low budget weed movies. A lot there's of like strains, weed- if you will. A lot of strains, yeah. There's like weed horror movies. There's like weed movies where there's like just one rapper in it for five minutes, and that's how like they got fifty thousand dollars to make it. So uh, the well, like I, sideways for weed is less like <laughs> would be like less stoner comedy and more yeah. like them like going like they go to high, they go to various high end dispensaries. Obviously, the Giamatti character would be like i'm not smoking like a hybrid or like something <laughs> like like he i'm not taking like, no fucking edibles <laughs> there'd be <In> like <laughs> yeah there'd be those types of opinions yeah. uh there which and is I just mean, like I the worst like, type of weed guy obviously oh, yeah no they're the worst type of weed guys and i feel like now would be now's the perfect time yeah after it's been legal like those types of guys have emerged to the forefront there. Oh, absolutely. So it's, the, the market's primed and ready for weed sideways. I'm just <laughs> saying that now. But, like, if if you make it, if anyone makes it, I want a piece of the pie. <laughs> yeah, give us the cut. No, I think, I think you're right. I think that, there, you know, we do need something like that. And that hopefully, you know, the legalization, you know, maybe it becomes a more high-end thing. You know, that's why all these... These directors, you know, their their fancy characters are sipping wine. You know, we need to make it more of a high end active. You know, it's it, it'll boost the brand of weed for everyone. Everyone involved. <laughs> I'm sure you could big, big really hit. easily sell that in a movie, like a character being very fancy by smoking like an infused joint. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, I just picked up this infused joint. <laughs> Someone should make like. All right, we, we can't do too much weed talk. Actually. Well, that's the thing, because the, the thing it reminded me of was like what a thought I've had, you know, naturally uh, thousands of times over the last five years or so is what if Frasier smoked weed? And, you know, this movie is so Frasier-esque uh, that I had to look into the connection. And, of course, there is literally a bottle of wine in this movie referenced by name that was also referenced by name in an episode of Frasier which is one of the greatest coincidences of all time. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, in, in our great world of TV movie crossover characters in the universe of Extended Clip, uh, you know, Miles and Frasier and not Ni- It's Miles and Niles, too. That's the weird thing. So Miles, Niles, and <laughs> Frasier, they're all, they're all having their merry way in, in the, <laughs> the, great, the great wine tasting in the sky. That was skillful how you wove Frasier into this, you know. That's, that's... I'm the host for a reason, you know. <laughs> uh, I also love that Sideways is inst- from the first like 30 minutes, it's great as a casual pro drunk driving movie. Like nobody says anything other than the one bartender who asks if uh, Miles is okay when he's leaving, but they drink and drive so fucking much in this movie. It rules like just opening bottles of wine at the start of a road trip. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking boss mode, dude. Uh, And yeah, I think that Giamatti taking like Xanax and Lexapro in 2004 like that really is the early 2000s American bourgeoisie version of like the European ennui uh, of the 50s and stuff Uh, so I think there is like a connection to you know a lot of European art house cinema to this because Payne clearly watched those movies and is influenced by them and has talked about his influence Uh, but or talked about his influences Uh, But obviously this is through a middle brow, you know, 20th Century Fox 2004 uh, filter Uh, like he can't do a straight up art film. But this is as close as he's come, to be honest, uh, other than maybe Nebraska, which I think is too overtly like white elephant art and the digital black and white's not very pretty, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is like his most artful movie, even if maybe I like downsizing a little bit more. I think this is definitely like his best. Actually, I'm sorry. Let me shut up my dog. Give me a second. 
You're allowed to have barking dogs on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you I'm... want me? You want me to just leave? All right. Yeah, I'll I'll leave him be. Let barking All dogs right, lie. Uh, All right. That's, yeah, I was I'm guilty to... of that. Like pretty. Like most. Ep- well, I mean, maybe not barking, but like scuttling around. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're gonna get some yelps. I was about to beat the hell out of my dog, so you, you saved you, you saved a, you saved a, a lashing for sure. And, and Eddie, and Eddie, you might you might you might grow to regret that statement that it's okay to have my fucking dog on the podcast. But um, but this one, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Dude, Malcolm Vick is about to go in right now. <laughs> I'm going to show you a good time. We're going to drink a lot of good wine. We're going to play some golf. We're going to eat some great food and enjoy the scenery. And we're going to send you off in style, Wolfram. And get your bones smooched. I feel like this movie looks better than like most of the other Alexander Payne movies. I could think of, not to say that Payne style is usually bad, but I, I think there's just something about the way he shoots kind of like the, the beauty of Napa, mm-hmm. sun kind of shining through the trees and whatnot, and kind of just, uh, I don't know, there's there's just some visual schemes in this movie that really takes this movie to another level, because honestly, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I know it's intentional, but I am kind of annoyed by the Paul Giamatti character, I just am. I just, I just, I just am. I, I, I don't know how to. I was gonna say it like a Looney Tunes character, but <laughs> I, I, I just, it's just the one thing about this movie that I, I, I can't get over is that I don't necessarily like spending time with this guy. But I, I but I, I think the, I still think the movie's actually, I still think it's very good. I, I admire it in a lot of senses, but I, I think the, the visuals in this movie kind of. Uh, were a way in as someone who was kind of annoyed by the Giamatti character. I mean, for me, I I really like the movie and Giamatti's character is not as uh, big of a hindrance for me. I mean, like aside, like the points, like certainly he's like despicable as a person. A lot of the time, like I think truly one of the worst things he does at the beginning where he like, steals money from his mom yeah that's uh, one of the best like, scenes in the movie yeah oh yes, yeah, yeah absolutely and that's like again that's that's not really him being annoying but how annoying and frustrating he is i do kind of bristle a little bit at the ending with him being able to again it's not quite him getting everything he wants and i don't necessarily think it like would be better for him to be to continue just being a miserable fuck to yeah. like end the film. As part of it, like again, to go into like kind of annoying screenwriting bullshit. It feels a little unearned to me because it's just like I don't know. He he suffers, and it's not really his like fuck up that like that pushes her away initially, but. I don't know. It's a little too nice to this asshole. I I disagree. Uh, not to go too deep into the ending, but I think that the ending is purposely ambiguous. Like he knocks on the door and that's it. Like that's you. I don't think that it is like convincing you that he's gonna have a good relationship with this woman. It's that at most she's gonna open the door and they're gonna go out on a date that night, you know. Like, and I read into this. The so the adaptation, the biggest change is the ending because the the book, uh, the ending of the book is that uh, when she reads the manuscript, she decidedly like changes her heart on Miles and thinks that because of the book he's a good person. Uh, <laughs> she's gonna give him a second chance because of that. Uh, when in the movie she leaves a vice a nice voicemail uh that's like kind of leading him on and then he just goes and knocks on her door uh like you know apropos of nothing and we don't see what happens i vibe with the ambiguity there but like i just still think that's too like i think her calling back like is still a little bit too generous because she's like she is like you're a great and again like we don't see his writing throughout the like uh film like his agents kind of blow smoke up his ass a little bit at one point. So conceivably it could 
be good. But I, I just I, I think even getting the chance is like a little bit too generous given the circumstances. But I, I do again, I like but I like the ambiguity of it because it does like leave open what you're saying there. Like and, and a chance is like slightly more hopeful. Again, it's not to say that it's like that he's not going to immediately fuck it up. I also think it goes into the the whole like critique of his characters versus love of his characters that Payne's had his whole career where yeah. he has these types of guys that he grew up around and wants to critique but also he has love for them so like he can't mm-hmm. go all the way and like that could be a problem for some people I think it's a problem the other way for most people like uh, contemporary reviews are like look Alexander Payne grew up in the Midwest but clearly he left that behind and hates those people the way he depicts them in <laughs> election and citizen Ruth he thinks they're all hicks and dummies you know when it's like clearly no uh, he thinks they're hicks and du- he thought they were hicks and dummies probably when he was 17 and wanted to get out of this town like any art artistic kid in the Midwest would I don't know there there's a certain humanism and a certain baseline love for his characters there where he can't go full board critique either uh like he he has to have this bit of humanization that if you've given up on the film while you're watching it you're not going to feel it or think it's earned as all, at all but i think if you buy into the conceits of his movies the those pieces of humanization are really uh, really fascinating, like w- how he chooses to go about making these characters more watchable than they really should be, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I guess the, the the ending, I guess, I think it's hopeful. Mm-hmm. I, I think to call it, 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 obviously there's the ambiguity of like how well that's going to go, but he, he, he does get the, the, the praise, pretty good literary praise. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's a bit of hope, but at the same time, it, it's, I'm not exactly looking for, you know, a condemnation of this character. I don't really know how else the movie's supposed to end, I guess, either. You know, right? Like, does he just end... It ends with him sitting down at home, just alone? <laughs> I don't know. That, that would Maybe maybe that'd be too much. I like that about Payne, you know, kind of taking certain characters... Like, I think Election and, uh, you know, the characters there are a great example where he obviously has fangs out for those characters, maybe even more so than... Uh, the tone here in Sideways. You know, he's definitely got critiques of these people, but, you know, he's showing that even annoying people, bad people, you know, whatever, how, however much judgment you want to cast on, on these people, you know, whatever you want to say about them, you know, these there's there's a, a, a rhythm to their lives too, you know what I mean, that mm-hmm. I'm willing to depict. And, and I, I, I always admire that and... So yeah, I I like that about Sideways. I just you know it is that's that's why I find this movie just kind of uh, maybe a slight bit frustrating for me. Is like I, I I like that about Pain. I like that about his characters. But if I'm just being honest, I just don't like spending time mm-hmm. with the Paul Giamatti character. I just I just really don't. Yeah, but no, that's perfectly understandable. <laughs> I just feel like for me, uh, the Giamatti character winds up being more likable and sympathetic than the Thomas Hayden Church character, especially when it becomes clear that, like, he doesn't, like, he doesn't really care about anything other than getting pussy. Like, uh, at least, and I mean, for, it's, like, kind of stupid. I mean, like, various interests are silly and stupid, but, like, when there's that moment uh, with... uh, uh, Miles and uh, Maya sort of both professing their love and like how they got into wine. The, like seeing that passion there is like obviously it doesn't undercut like everything we've seen before about the character that makes him completely insufferable. But the passion and knowledge that he has for wine does. Like, I don't know. We don't get much of, like, what the Hayden Church character really gives a shit about. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I do find myself, like, towards the end of the film, being, like, at his sympathies a little bit more. I love the Thomas Hayden Church character as, like, a foil. It's very screenwriter you know. But, like, they're both, like, 
artistic types, I guess, or artists on kind of opposite career trajectories, right? Giamatti's a teacher who's trying to finally fucking get published. Uh, and Thomas Hayden Church used to be a TV star and is now barely getting any work and just doing advertising stuff. And, uh, you know, one is more about the soul and his needs uh, long term. And the other one is scared to get married and just wants to get as much pussy as quickly as possible. Uh, And I think it's like a very evenly balanced thing. And it's what creates so much easy comedy between the two of them. Um, I, I think that Giamatti's passion for wine versus Hayden Church's indifference, but just like general bro nature of like, yeah, I'm down to get fucked up, uh, is a really hilarious dynamic. That's where all of the comedy is for me. Uh, like at that first wine tasting where Giamatti's putting his nose in the glass and he's like even covering his ear uh, for some reason because I think that makes him smell better, not being able to hear things. Uh, and Thomas Hayden Church is just looking at him fucking mystified is one of the funniest things in the movie. They get in a big fight later on uh, when uh, Jack tells Miles that his ex-wife is getting remarried or has been remarried. And man, Giamatti just like takes a bottle, uncorks it with his mouth and runs like a fucking goblin. Uh, There are like there are multiple scenes here where Giamatti is running in like a very wide legged way with a very angry face. And he is just in pure goblin mode. No, that that scene is one that sticks out to me in my mind, definitely when thinking about this movie, because it, it is like I, I feel like it's one of the funnier scenes of the movie and just uh, seeing Giamatti, you know, just traverse through the, the beautiful Napa landscape. It mm-hmm. is and kind of like the argument that they're having kind of on the side of the road and, you know, have kind of the classic, you know. Uh, beautiful setting conflicting with you know maybe some not so beautiful conversation and then him kind of just running in in you know uh, out of the car into like the vineyards right that's what he does and he's like looking at the grapes and it's and it's kind of like uh i I don't know it giamatti kind of taking his friend on wine country for his bachelor party it's kind of funnier when you think about it because it is like the the friend doesn't he doesn't really have that much of an interest in wine, but he knows he'll like it, you know, because like like you said, he likes getting fucked up. And but Giamatti kind of just in exiting out of this conversation and emerging himself more into the to the wine world, you know what I mean? Like I I think it's just very funny to me, just him, you know. He kind of uses this wine knowledge throughout the film. He doesn't exactly lord lord it over his friend, but obviously there's like a slight bit of resentment for him not being so much into it as he is so it's kind of funny mm-hmm. when they argue it's like he literally you know has to grab a wine bottle and grab run into the vineyards you know what i mean he's almost using wine as like a a binky <laughs> so the conflict for them uh is the fact that thomas hayden church is just like trying to drown himself in pussy uh the week before he gets married uh, Paul Giamatti's character Miles is not able to quite uh, seal the deal as it were with Maya uh, you know perhaps because of his consciousness about the lie of the situation but more likely because he's still just hung up on his ex-wife as the film demonstrates uh, so this obviously you know brings all of the conflict in the movie great scene of uh, you know Giamatti walking in on Thomas Hayden Church and Sandra Oh having sex, which seems to be his final straw kind of thing. I think what really kicks the Thomas Hayden Church thing into overdrive is like his affair with Sandra Oh blows up because she finds out the truth and everyone finds out the truth and the whole trip is blown up. But they stop at a diner on the way home and like while he has this bandage on him and everything from Sandra O beating him up Thomas Hayden Church is just like all right I'm just going to fuck this waitress real quick before <laughs> like it's like literally the boogie nights like one last uh thing <laughs> uh like one last side mission is that Thomas Hayden Church has to like fuck this um let's just say this homely waitress uh who uh, you know by the rest of the film standards is not who he would usually be going for Fucking chick's married, man. What? Her husband works a night shift or something, and he comes home and catches me on the floor with my cock in his wife's ass. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jack. 
And you walked all the way from Solvang? I ran. Twisted my ankle, too. That's five clicks, Jackson. Fucking ain't right, it's five clicks. At one point, I had to cut through an ostrich farm. <laughs> you know, Thomas Hayden Church, one of the many naked male bodies you see in this movie, kind of sneaky, a lot of nail nudity in this movie. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so yeah, the last mission is that Giamatti has to uh, retrieve uh, Thomas Hayden Church's wallet while this kind of grotesque couple is having sex in their house. And I love that scene. I think it's one of the funniest things in any Alexander Payne movie. And it's a it's a great climax for this movie to just like inject some kind of genre juice into it uh, at the last second if you were kind of like trailing off a little, you know. Yeah, I like it too because I I want a little bit more genre conventional stuff here just for my own taste. Like I wanted more antics, I guess. And there's there's mm-hmm. there, there are some for sure. There's plenty. Yeah. Um. But like you know, like a lot of my favorite scenes in this movie are kind of when it's kind of going for like a straight up kind of comedic humor. You know, kind of like on the golf course when you know the boys are golfing and some people try to um you know pass through you know and hit their ball while they're still you know dealing with the 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 hole and the, you know just I, I like i like the comedic antics like that and yeah this scene was definitely one of my favorites the build up as well is the the boys antics like um at the start of the film it definitely sets up for like kind of that like ha- like more of like a hangout genre film than what it actually becomes. But I like, again, going back to just the core, the two of them giving them a fun little antic. And it's just like the characters are obviously very different. And I feel like there's a clear implication that like, uh, they aren't as close of friends anymore. Or like if there ever was like, an extreme closeness like Giamatti at one point I feel like describes their relationship as that like they were like college like freshman roommates so I I like that despite them not really having much in common together there Giamatti kind of rallies here just to to help the boy out you know and it's just again so fucking funny like especially the way like when Thomas Hayden Church comes back and he's describing the incident, he's like, "Yeah, he comes at like I was like, I'm fucking his wife in the ass. Like, what do you think? Like, he's gonna do?" Um, so I, I think funny. the relationship is really good, and it's a little more complex than that even because I think when he, Paul Giamatti says uh, to Maya, like he was just my freshman year roommate you know he's trying to distance himself down that moment yeah, yeah yeah it's like at the moment where he reveals the lie of the vacation and she's like shocked at his behavior and he's like i'm not jack he was just my roommate in college and i think that's one of honestly one of the more pathetic moments of the movie for giamatti because even though he's very resentful of jack for like flaunting around getting pussy a week before he gets married uh i I think there's a deep relationship there that like, even if they don't see each other all that frequently anymore, uh, the, there's a deep bond there that he doesn't want to break. I mean, he, he says he won't go to the wedding at one point, but you know, he's still the best man at the wedding at the end. Well, yeah. And it's also, it's like the classic guy who isn't in that situation, who isn't, you know, easily getting woman. It's like easy for him to kind of criticize his actions but you know he's jerking off to barely legal pornography you know and i mean he's well within his right to pursue women but it you know it's it's i think a lot of that there's obviously a bit of resentment there that you know thomas hayden church being able to do things easier than he can and i think yeah that's one of the stronger uh more well detailed refined parts of the movie is kind of like their relationship and yeah, it's like he's trying to distance himself from that behavior, but I, you know, they are friends and, you know, he probably wants to behave that way maybe more than he's willing to admit possibly. Uh, Malcolm, a bullet rating and any final thoughts on sideways? Oh, so are we bringing the bullet ratings back after music? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think we're going back to it. I like it. All right. Well, don't, don't get mad at me. Cause I, I, I you know. We, we famously argue when our scores differ, as like mm-hmm. the last question said. We get we get really mad off mic, but I'm going to give Sideways three bullets. 
because I like the movie and I recognize that it's good. I think it's maybe Payne's like visually best movie, but I, I just really, I just, I, 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 it's, it's a, it's a lame criticism, I, I think. So, you know, feel free to poke holes in it, but I, I just, I'm just so turned off by the, the Giamatti character and, and I, I know he's, you know, we're supposed to see his faults, obviously, but I, I just, so to the point where when this movie kind of goes for a sincerity, goes for something deeper, I'm not exactly there with it. And not, not because it's not well done. It's just, I'm, I'm just not in the headspace to really, I don't know, go there with that character necessarily. Um, yeah, totally. And yeah. I think that like there, there are going to be certain listeners go with alarm bells ringing in their head, you know, their uh, depiction versus endorsement, depiction versus endorsement yeah. and, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, obviously there are plenty of movies and I'm trying to think of an example for myself because I know it's a, f- a, ha- a feeling I've had while watching stuff. There are plenty of movies with a detestable protagonist where that is the point of the movie, of course. Uh, just like was like every popular TV show in the late 2000s, you know. Um, but there, I think every person has their own personal tipping point of you know how much they enjoy the rest of the thing, how much they personally dislike the character, uh, like as if they were a real person. And I think the actor probably plays into that too. Uh, and I think there's just like certain movies that happen to be over the tipping point where it's like you can recognize the goodness of the movie, but, and you can recognize that uh, everything you hate about Giamatti is on purpose, a critique of that character from pain and still not like it. You know, I, I think yeah. that's like a, a, a thing that people tend to overlook is the, the wiggle room there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not writing for the guardian, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm giving you uh, <laughs> my, my personal, you know, thoughts here and, you know, film, film watching is very personal and I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's because, you know, uh, I knew too, I know too many middle-aged uh, wine country people. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I, uh, and I like Giamatti. It, it is, I kind of, you know, I, it's, it, it's funny thinking of Giamatti, not to go to Simmons mode, but this is probably, I can't remember a movie where he was the lead that was as popular as this. So I, I like that mm-hmm. Giamatti is, uh, you know, given the lead role here. And I like pain. I, you know, I, uh, I, I tried to getting into UCLA with like a 10 page review of downsizing. So it, it is, I was, I wanted to, I thought it was going to be an interesting revisit. I was really expecting this movie to kind of unlock for me, you know what I mean? And, I think it did in a sense where I recognize the craft is very well done, but I, I just, I'm just a little irked by the Giamatti character in a way that I, I guess I, I can't quite get over, but I, I'm giving it the positive rating. I'm giving it the glad hand. Um, I just probably won't be rewatching this movie soon, but I, I tip my cap to it. So I'm going to go uh, four bullets for this one. I think it's pretty great. I probably trending towards the higher end of the, pain films uh that i've seen i mean just again what we've kind of already touched on about the sharper satirical like elements at play here but also there just being such a richness of character like that like is more overwhelming and just like is at the core and like I, i don't know it's just that type of thing where there is this harsh cynicism there, but it's never overpowering. There's always like, I don't know, it's such a sense of affection here. Like they're like pieces of shit, but they're, I don't know, you, you can, t- you can see the screenwriter's hand in just like wanting to throw the guys a bone a little bit or understanding how they got there Mm -hmm. for me in particular relating back to the Giamatti character and finding him annoying or not it's very funny because watching the film like I had a like roommate uh in college like freshman year into like sophomore year who is like exactly like the Giamatti character both in terms of like physical appearance like dude was like balding pretty early like kind of like donut beard wore like oversized like polo like 
baggy, like khaki pants, mm-hmm. um, and just like also had artistically minded, but couldn't really accomplish anything, and just like very negative, cynical attitude. But I don't know. It was just funny to see a type of a person that I knew so clearly and well, like pretty much down to a T. And I don't know, just again, like kind of adds like a point in favor of just like how real the characters are and lived in the world is. Going back to Malcolm's point in what I was saying about that tipping point, I'm trying to think of some examples. And I think the the two that come to mind recently are both like low budget kind of meta filmmaking movies. There's uh, The Plagiarists by Peter Parlow. A lot of P's there. Uh, from 2019, which I remember really disliking, just like immediately shot to mind. And of course, there's uh, Actors by uh, Betsy Brown. Not a huge fan of that one. And I think uh, it, 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 I don't even think it fully comes down to both lead characters being that detestable, though. I think the whole venture is just stupid. Uh, but it kind of still fits in the camp. Um, I'll try to think of more examples eventually. But on Sideways, I'm going four stars, four bullets rather. I, I think that this is a one-of-a-kind movie. I can't believe in hindsight that there was a time 20 years ago where this was like a best picture, best director, best screenwriter, you know, each of the acting nominate, like got nominated for all the major awards, you know? Um, I just don't see that happening today. Uh, not to do everyone's least favorite type of criticism, you know, but it, it really is a reflection of another era, uh, in the most small middle brow minor type of way. Uh, I think it's just like kind of a great movie that slipped through the cracks and the fact that it became like a cultural phenomenon is still strange to me. I, I don't get why this was such a popular movie. Uh, I love that it was that popular though. So yeah, four bullets from me. Uh, and the other film that I can think of that I hate the protagonist so much that it ruins the movie would be Life Itself, the documentary about Roger Ebert. Uh, we will be right back on Extended Clip. Chicken pox turn the base up just a notch. You see them blades chopping, chopping. You see that trunk popping. Hoes that diss me in the club, the same hoes in the parking lot bopping. They see me in the jag, acting bad with T Ferris. Open mouth and showcase ice, and you gon' see about 20 carats. I'm with the you, you want five nine double O in the Tahoe one twenty foes. I'm the troop, I got they glow. I'm out this social house with Archie Lee and Cody. And we're back on extended clip. It's Malcolm in the Middle, everybody's favorite segment. Life is unfair malcolm how's life what's up i hear a lot of clutter in the background are there is there an entire film crew and a a cast of dogs at your house as well yeah you know the the family tradition i got i got i got people at my house you know shooting a little film project right now but uh you know so that should tell you life is life is full of life you know life itself as roger ebert famously said you know that's why it's the title of the movie um you know, and one thing about life is, you know, you got all these movies, you got to watch them. I've been doing that. I watched uh, Over the Edge by Jonathan Kaplan. Uh, I've never seen a Jonathan Kaplan movie, I guess. So this, this was a, a good introduction. This this was a very good movie. Uh, for those that don't know, it's, it's the movie is set in this kind of uh, town called New Granada, and it's like a... You know, uh, what do they call it? Like a developing town. There's like a bunch of empty houses. And basically, you know, all the kids that live there are bored out of their minds because there's no, there's nothing to do really. You know what I mean? All the, all the parents are people who are, are, are investing in the new town. And the kids turn, you know, to drugs and rebellion and whatnot. And uh, we got, you know, our main character, Carl, and 
Richie Richie's played by Matt Dillon. I think this is one of his earlier movies, and you know he looks young as hell. You know it's it's fun to see a young Matt Dillon, and you know it really does feel this type of movie feels very influential to something like uh, you know like kids or whatever, and then whatever you know the movies that influence kids. You know because what's interesting about this movie it is like you're saying like 13, 14 year olds do very like hard drugs like they're doing like pills and whatnot and i don't know it, it is I, I i kind of like this uh this this kind of bad environment and you know unlike kids unlike a lot of the movies like kids this movie has no judgment for the kids whatsoever it really is a condemnation on you know the absentee parents and what ends up happening is that matt dylan is killed by one of the cops you know and after getting pulled over and the kids essentially take over the town and start rebelling against the police. And it's a, um, you know, that that's that's kind of the back half of the movie. Most of it is kind of uh, focusing on the fallout of this Carl character after his friend Matt Dillon is killed. But uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of a lot of uh, good kind of like slice of life moments. A lot of good uh, poetic imagery and. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and this is a movie I I was looking to watch for a while, and I, I finally took the plunge. And I don't know, I, I, Kaplan's not necessarily the most heralded guy, but it definitely made me want to watch more, you know, more of his movies. I saw that he's got one with Isaac Hayes called Truck Turner that a lot of people like. So, yeah, he's Truck a guy Turner I, is fantastic. Yeah, so he's someone I want to I want to look into. He might be underrated. For fans of uh, young Matt Dillon. If you want another slice of that, uh, I would check out 1980 or 1981's My Bodyguard, directed by Tony Bill, where uh, Matt Dillon is like the cool kid at school. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> one of my favorite like youth movies ever made. JT, you watch anything good recently? I've watched about three movies, excluding Sideways. Uh, since we talked about I'm Not There, and there's a strange thing linking all three of them, and it's that they've been covered on the podcast before. I watched uh, The Phantom Menace, Wild Things, and Castle Freak. All rewatches, all great movies. I'd say about four bullets for each of them. Uh, so I just wanted to, one... Do a little promo for ourselves, our extensive back catalog, where we, where you can hear not just me singing the praises of these great films, but the the all three of us. Um, and it's like uh, I don't know, who knows? Maybe some point soon, one of us will pick some type of movie that has been covered on the podcast already. Do an extended clip rewatch. You do. I, I feel like one thing we talk about sometimes here is growing, learning, understanding, and I feel like we've been doing this podcast for I don't know what, like twenty years now. <laughs> I was a, I was a young man when this started. I had hopes. I'm seventy four years old. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we've there's been a lot of wisdom gained while making this show, and I think it's time that uh, there is an extended clip rewatch that occurs. I think uh, that's a who, fantastic idea. I've already thought about a handful of movies. I would like to do a, uh, a revisitation of. Uh, the leading candidate being Dr. T and the Women, but I think all three of those are also prime candidates. Oh, shit. Hold on one second. I have to go real quick. I'll be right back. One second. Sorry. Uh, okay. So, Malcolm, uh, what do you think JT's doing right now? I don't know, man. It's found, when anyone jumps up and leaves like that, I, I, I assume it's some, some urgent shit. Uh, I mean, I, you, you gotta think it's a bodily function, right? <laughs> That's true. That could be... I, I feel like he would say, I gotta go to the bathroom, like, real bad. I don't know, maybe not, though. Maybe, maybe he, he's, he's savvy enough to not say that in a microphone where, you know, it could be cataloged and saved. JT's a guy that loves to say nasty shit, but not when it's true, you know, like when it comes down to like, you know, having to take a big dump or uh, something about his pee pee, like 
he's not going to tell the truth about it necessarily. He's just going to, you know, spout off some jokes. That's an interesting. I think you you tapped into something interesting. The which this exists. The psychology of people who are like, like I'm fart. Like I farted, but when they didn't, but when they actually fart, <laughs> they they don't say anything. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of interesting. I wonder. It's the Spartacus effect. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what that's called? So, <laughs> someone else farts, and you're like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> I am Farticus. Sorry for the holdup. I just had to dash. He predicted that you really had to had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> that was his no, prediction. No, no. I, I would have said piss or shit if I had to, if I had to do either of those. I, I had a speculation about that, but you could just go back to the tape and listen. <laughs> <laughs> I also rewatched something that we talked about on the podcast. I love this trend. Another extended clip rewatchable. The Passenger by Michelangelo Antignoni. Uh, we did an episode a long time ago that was a double feature. Jack Week. We talked about Jack Nicholson's performances in The Passenger by Antignoni and Something's Gotta Give by Nancy Myers. Uh, a week ago, I did James L. Brooks's As Good As It Gets on this very segment. And about four days later, I did back-to-back screenings of Jack Nicholson in Chinatown uh, and The Passenger. Chinatown, I've rewatched way too many times, and the ending still makes me feel worse every time I watch it. Just a quick note. The Passenger might be the best movie of the 70s, though. Like, I, I truly have never felt... Uh, the way that I do watching The Passenger with anything else. I think that it's the perfect mix of what Antonioni had achieved in the 60s through pure like mise-en-scene and framing and architecture and production design and you know storytelling at large like the thematic stuff he develops with his actors and stuff and you know using their faces as landscapes he's using all of that but then this time it's basically a genre movie uh it, it is a genre movie not basically you know this is like an international espionage movie where jack nicholson you know trades in his identity uh takes advantage of a dead man and trades places with him and uh gets involved in an international gun running affair and it is one of the greatest films about identity and uh spatial awareness i guess like i don't even know how to put it it's just the way that antonioni uses the camera as both a pov device for jack not even in explicit pov shots but you know for the camera and uh, for the audience and him to almost share perspective and for these grand vistas, like these grand landscapes. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's maybe the peak of his filmmaking for me, that and La Ventura are like tied for my favorite films by him and each are at the top of both of their decades. Uh, so yeah, that is what I watched most notably as of late. Nice time for emails. We do have an email this week. I'm excited. I'm titillated. Yeah. As always, uh, the email address is extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. This one comes from Spencer, not the previous guest, a different Spencer. Hey, guys. First of all, I uh, wanted to thank you boys for the endless content up to this point. As a longtime Twitter lurker and relatively new fan, I've been enjoying the Extended Clip Back catalog for the past few months. In fact, I just did a six-week Euro backpacking trip, and now my time spent wandering the streets of Geneva and Budapest will forever be linked with your three voices arguing for the merits of Mr. Dennis Dugan, or Malcolm suggesting a cum tribute to the 1517 to Paris was in order. So thanks for that. I do not remember that, but I'm yeah, also I I'm no, glad I at once I I'm glad I don't remember that, and also maybe he's making it up. But I, that's we've done so many episodes. It made me think it's like I have no recollection of what the hell I've said on these episodes. So, anyways, my question: as Barbie continues to rack up the big bucks at the box office, you could say the tides may be shifting away from the MCU and toward a new craze. The toy movie. Lena Dunham now is a Polly Pocket movie in the works, and uh, there's a new Barney movie being made. And uh, so, if the ties are to shift, what are your dream toy filmmaker pairings? Maybe a Cronenberg film based on Twister? Or Hong Sang Soo, uh, populated with Mr. Potato Heads? Or 
could we see how Terrence Malick captures life's great mystery, the Slinky? Well, Spencer, that is a very, uh, you know, it's one of those questions where you're kind of giving the answer that you think is the funniest, <laughs> you know? I like the Twister Cronenberg one. That one's not bad. I'll, I mean, that's on. like the A to B. Like, you got to yeah. hit that one for sure. No, that's a good one. That's like, that's the answer, kind of. Like, if you're doing a joke answer. If you're doing a sincere answer, I don't want to see any of those movies. I think it's, like, disgusting. <laughs> yeah. It's like the next level of baby movie. It's so funny how deep into baby movie mode we're going uh, at large I think it's disgusting, but I mean, like, there is credence to, like, I mean, it is slightly different, thi- uh, slightly a different thing, but, like, Gremlins 2, which I do think is mm-hmm. a masterpiece, is kind of Joe Dante taking, I mean, Gremlins becoming, like, toy products to sell after the fact. It is kind of, I, it's a play on that in a way that, like, I, I feel like that's the most comparable, but still doesn't feel as, like, I don't know. Like any type of movie like that does always have the toy movie stink on it. No, I mean Gremlins because- one was a subversive, you know, kind of kitty horror movie that you know, if if you could read between the lines at all, you, you know, shouldn't have been like a merch success, but was because yeah, people yeah. are stupid and can't read between the lines. So Joe Dante had to make Gremlins two, which is ten times thicker with cynical satire. You know, like I I don't I think that's like so far flung from what any of these Mattel adaptations can possibly be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, it's different because there's like the. It springs from the original idea there, um, the the product element of it. I don't know. I hate all these IP movies like uh, Oppenheimer and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Theory of Everything. Um, IP freely. Anyone ever do that? Fake vomit movie. Damon Packard. That's the best I could come up with. Okay. Fake vomit okay. is a toy. Now, I like that. Not Mattel, but like you get whatever company made those low rent gag gifts and give them like a uh, like a Canon Group style production company <laughs> to make yeah. the uh, the fake cat shit uh, movie and the fake vomit <laughs> movie and the the retractable dollar bill movie. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. They may have they have like, they have like Transformers right that's like the toy movie for boys, then you have Barbie that's the toy movie for girl. That's how I'm simplifying it, but you know that's. But what about toys for you know a kid like me and their do well? You know what about the Slingshot movie or uh, Fake Vomit, the Whoopee Cushion movie? Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense, directing the Snake in a Peanut Brittle Can movie. <laughs> to show what's scary before you see it right so the snakes in the can so you don't see it what what's what's, what's you know what's what was your favorite toy growing up let's 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 I reframe mean, the conversation if we're talking prank toys it's easily the the peanut brittle slash tube of chips with the thing that pops out that's like the immediacy of that blowing up in someone's face is something that always made me laugh so hard as a kid it's not quite a toy, but thinking of, I had a lot of like prankster toys as a little child, um, and at one point, like I had them. It was this big blue like plastic briefcase that had a lock on it, but I put an extra like a bike lock on it, and then I put it the ceiling in our basement like had like a little like uh like ceiling tiles that if the kinds that if you push up you can get into where the tile is and i stored the my little prank suitcase in there and it's just so funny to think back now because it's like one i didn't even use the prank kit all that much as a boy but just the fact that someone would see like essentially like five dollars of useless plastic junk and want to take it <laughs> or that there's <laughs> any value present there. <laughs> I guess I was always a little bit disappointed that I, I don't think I ever really got off successful pranks, but like. No, they were never as good as like the cartoon drawing of like the man like sitting on the whoopee cushion and thinking he just sharded. I think yeah. pranking might be a purely fictional invention. 
I don't know if anyone's getting <laughs> these pranks off in real life unless they're, they're Ashton Kutcher and they have $100,000 behind them. That's just my theory. Because those, the buzz, the buzz thing, you know what I mean? When you shake someone's mm-hmm. hand and it buzzes them, that stuff doesn't even, you know, didn't even hurt. It was all a sham. Well, it just shocks you. It's not supposed to hurt. No, they're supposed to... to, Me, as a kid, I wanted them to feel a little bit of pain. That's just me, though. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for uh, feeling pain, Malcolm in the Middle, emails, sideways, and Alexander pain. So until next time, we'll leave you with Dinosaur Jr.'s Feel the Pain. (laughs) And uh, on the next episode... We're going to talk to our old friend Jason Buford is coming back. We are going to talk about Baby Boy by John Singleton. So that will be a fun episode. So uh, goodbye, everybody. Nice. Tight. Tight.